Welcome back to our Wednesday evening study. We are currently in the midst of a study on uh, the signs of salvation. Uh, we've discussed that in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Christ gives his church the Great Commission, uh, in which there are four uh, actions that the church is supposed to take. We are to go to the nations, we are to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all things that Jesus has commanded. And so uh, we're asking the question, well, how do we know when someone has become a disciple? How do we know when they have trusted in Christ for salvation so that we know uh, who to continue evangelizing, who we should baptize, who we should continue teaching, who we should encourage uh, with some assurance that they are saved, and who we should warn uh, so as to avoid giving false assurance of salvation? And so we're primarily uh, focusing on the text of Acts chapter 2, following Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Uh, he preached this sermon, and we noticed the response of those who heard it. And the first response we noticed in verse uh, 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Uh, and so we talked about the conviction of sin and of repentance, uh, which is one of the things that Peter exhorted them to. Peter said to them, repent. And then last week, uh, we looked at the next part of what Peter said was to let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so uh, we looked at the idea of obedience uh, to Christ, particularly the initial act of obedience uh, in baptism and the desire for that, that a true Christians should have. And so this evening we want to continue uh, and look at the idea of love for God's Word as a sign of someone's true salvation. That if we truly have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, brought to faith in Christ, that we should love His Word. And so uh, we can see this in our text, particularly in verses 41 and 42. Uh, Peter has preached this sermon. They've Act asked him what they are to do in response to it. Uh, he tells them to repent and be baptized. It says in verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Uh, so here's the idea that uh, they had come to faith and received baptism because they gladly received the word that was preached to them. And then in verse 42 it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So uh, they've continued steadfastly in the doctrine that is being taught to them by the apostles. Now, why is this uh, glad receiving of the word or steadfast continuance in the word a sign of salvation? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man, the one who is still in uh, this, the state of being enslaved by sin, uh, does not know the things of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot discern them, so he will not have a love for the Word of God and will not gladly receive it unless the Spirit regenerates his heart. So this is a sign uh, of conversion. Uh, to the believer, to, to the unbeliever, 
the word is foolishness. The things of God are foolishness. But to the believer, uh, they are quite the opposite. Uh, I'll read to you a few verses uh, from the Psalms that make this point. Particularly, I'll start in Psalm 19, and then I'll move to Psalm 119. But in Psalm 19, it says this about the word of God. It says, beginning in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So for the believer, for the, for the one whose heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and he has come to love Christ and to love God, he will also love God's word. And the, the unconverted person will see the God's word as foolishness. It won't be appealing to him. But for the believer, listen to the things this psalm said about the, the word of God. It's perfect. It's perfect. How many things in this world are perfect? One that I can think of, the, the Word of God. They're sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. I mean, how often do we want something that is sure, that's dependable, that we can count on uh, through thick and thin? The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I mean, they're, they're right. We can look at the laws and statutes of this country and see that some of them are very, very wrong. But here all the statutes of the Lord are right and they bring joy to our hearts. They're pure in the midst of a world that is filled with corruption and sin. They're clean. They're true and righteous altogether. Uh, all these things can be said of the word of God and, and not of much else in this world. And so the word of God is to be more desired than the riches of this world. So Psalm 119, uh, of course, is... David's meditation on the scriptures. Almost every verse of this psalm is filled with uh, talk of the scriptures. But listen to some of the things that he says about uh, the word of God in Psalm 119. He says, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So he's finding delight in the word of God. He says in verse 28, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. So when his soul is, is troubled and distressed, he finds strength in the word of God. He says in verse 41, Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So he looks to the word of God for assurance of salvation. In verse 50, he says, This is my comfort in affliction, for your word has given me life. He finds life in the word of God, comfort in the midst of affliction. He says in verse 74, those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. So he places his hope and his trust in the sure word of God. He says in verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God is a light to us in the midst of the darkness of sin. He says in verse 140, your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. And so David loves the word of God because of its pureness, its holiness. He says in verse 160, 
The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of it is truth. If you want to know what is true in the world, you can find it in the scriptures. And then in verse 162, he says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And so that should be uh, the heart of a true believer, finding great treasure and rejoicing in it uh, in the word of God. Now, again, as we're looking at new believers who have just repented and just come to faith, uh, we don't expect a new convert to understand all of Scripture. None of us in this room understand all of Scripture, and some of us have been in church our entire lives. Uh, so it, it, Scripture is deep, it is wide. We don't expect them to understand it all instantly from the moment of salvation, but they should have a love for it, a desire uh, to learn from it and to obey it. And so we could ask ourselves, uh, someone newly comes to faith and professes faith in Christ, uh, do they receive the word with gladness? Are they excited about the scriptures? Are they humble and wanting to learn from what the scripture has to say? Uh, do they remain steadfast in the scriptures? Peter Masters, uh, the pastor there at the London Metropolitan Tabernacle, says steadfastness is an excellent sign that God's word has a new authority in the life of one who is truly converted. So we can think about uh, the parables that Christ tells uh, of the word being sown uh, and preached and who receives it. And some who receive it, it says it springs up with gladness, but then it withers away later because it has no roots, it's shallow, or it gets choked out by the concerns of this world. So steadfastness is a sure sign, an excellent sign, uh, Peter Master says, that someone has truly been converted. So what does it mean then when it says that they uh, received the word with gladness and that they steadfastly continued in it. Well, to receive it means to give it a hearty welcome, uh, to, to think of receiving guests and showing them great hospitality. Uh, you're welcoming, you're excited about it, and, and to do so with gladness, with joy. To steadfastly continue in it uh, means to attend to it constantly. The same word is used uh, in verse 46 when it says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Uh, so every day they were steadfast in their fellowship with one, one another in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They're continuing daily in it. Uh, so it's regular, repeated, constant uh, engagement in it. We can see in uh, a couple of passages, one in Romans and one in Colossians. I'll just read the one in Romans. Romans 12, 12 uh, talks about rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. And we know that we're commanded to pray without ceasing, uh, to pray regularly. So to continue steadfastly in prayer means you don't just pray one time and then be done with it for the rest of your life. You pray regularly, constantly, daily, over and over again. So to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine would imply the same thing, to regularly engage with the word of God, with the doctrine that is being taught. Now, when it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, uh, the Greek word here is didache, which means the teaching. 
so we can think about, uh, you know, when we worked our way through Second Timothy on Sunday mornings and talked about the pattern of sound words. Uh, that's what's being talked about here, the teaching of the apostles. Uh, and so this word didache uh, actually is the title of a document, a historical document that we have uh, from about the second century that really was the, um, the first policy and procedure manual for the early church. Uh, this was a, a very short document, but it was a summary of some Christian doctrine, and it was used in the churches. Uh, the, the full title of it is The Teaching, or there, there's the word didache, of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. And so most scholars believe this was a document the early Jewish Christians put together to help instruct Gentile converts to Christianity. Uh, and so uh, it teaches just the basics of doctrine. Uh, the first section of it really teaches you how to love God and love your neighbor. Uh, it's interesting that the very first part of it is a page full of you shalls. And it's just a lot of the stuff that's in the Gospels that Jesus taught about loving your neighbor, forgiving one another, things of that nature. And then the second part of it is you shall not. And it goes through uh, many of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not steal, things like that. Interestingly, it adds a few things specifically. Uh, you shall not um, engage in practicing magic. Uh, you shall not kill a child by abortion. Uh, it specifically talks about those sorts of things. This is early 2nd century. Interestingly, it gets to the section on baptism, and this is what it says uh, concerning baptism. It says, concerning baptism, baptize in this way, having instructed him in all of these teachings. So those two pages or so of teachings were taught to new believers before they were baptized. Then baptize the catechuchum, that's someone who has been catechized, uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you do not have running water, then baptize in other water. And if you cannot in cold water, use warm. And so it just kind of goes through their policy of how they would baptize. But it's interesting that they would instruct someone uh, in this teaching. It's fairly short. It's not a massive systematic theology, but it's the basics of Christian theology. Uh, and then it goes on from there. It talks about uh, their practice of the Lord's Supper, and how they would conduct the Lord's Supper, who would be permitted to participate, that sort of thing. It has a short section on recognizing true and false teachers uh, and preachers in the church, and then a section on hospitality and on how to show hospitality to your neighbors and to other people in the church. It's a pretty short document. It's about 2,300 words, which means it's about half the length of one of my sermons. Uh, so... It's not that long, but it was used in the church for several centuries. Um, and it's just interesting that here it says they committed themselves to continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, so some of the questions that I want to discuss uh, regarding receiving the word with gladness or continuing steadfastly in the doctrine is, uh, first of all, why? would it be such a joyful thing to receive the word of God? Well, 10 times in Psalm 119, it calls the word of God a delight for the believer. For the unbeliever, it's foolishness. But for the Christian, it is a delight. Why is that? Why would uh, the word of God be such a delight for the Christian? Well, first of all, I would start with this. These 
here in Acts 2, heard the word preached to them. They heard the good news of Jesus preached to them, and it brought them to conviction of their sins, to repentance and faith in Christ. And so we see in Romans 10, as Paul is asking the question, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The one reason that true believers who have come to faith in Christ would receive the word with such gladness is knowing that it was the word of God, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that brought us to faith and salvation in the first place. Our salvation uh, came from hearing the word of God, either reading it or hearing it preached or proclaimed in some way. Uh, in Psalm 19, again, it said in verse 7, get back here to it, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, so the, the word converts the soul. It takes those who are simple and makes us wise. Uh, and then in verse 8, it says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the word of God brings us to faith in Christ. It revives our souls, converts us, uh, and it enlightens our eyes to the truth, the truth of our own sin, the truth of God's mercy and grace to us in Christ. Uh, and so we should receive it with joy. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, as Christ is praying for uh, his people, he says this in verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. So the word sanctifies us, the word purifies us. It teaches us how to live. It brings us more into alignment with the image of God in Christ. Uh, so we're sanctified by the word. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this about the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as Christians, we should turn to the word of God as the means by which we are equipped for the good work of living the Christian life. And so we have a duty to read it as Christians, and it should be a delight to receive it. Thomas Watson uh, is a, a Puritan from the English Reformation. If you're not familiar with Thomas Watson, I highly recommend him. He's one of the easiest of the Puritans to read. Uh, but he's got a, a book called The Godly Man's Picture, and there's a chapter in there about the godly man's love for the word. And, and this is the first thing that he says. He, he talks about one of the early church fathers, Christosom, compares the scripture to a garden set with ornaments and flowers. A godly man delights to walk in this garden and sweetly solace himself. He loves every branch and part of the word. 
Uh, and so Watson goes on to describe uh, why and how we should love the Word of God. And he specifically calls attention to uh, three branches of the Word or type parts of the, the Word that we should love. Uh, he says the first one is the counseling part of the Word. And what he means by that is that the Word teaches us how to live. The Word serves as a direction and rule for the life of the Christian. It is to be believed and practiced. So as someone who is converted and brought to faith in Christ and, and now they're a Christian, they want to live like a Christian, how are they going to learn how to do that in the word of God? And so they should have a love for it because it teaches them how to live for their Lord. But then interestingly, he says the second part of the word that we should love is the threatening parts. The threatening parts. He says that the scripture gives, makes no room for sin. It gives us no room to indulge sin in our lives. But he says that the godly person who has been converted and loves the word knows that there is love in every threat, that there is mercy in every threat. He goes on to compare the, the threatenings and warnings of scripture to a buoy that would be in the ocean to mark rocks that are under the water that, so that a ship wouldn't run aground on them. He says that buoy is there as a warning, threatening death if you disregard the warning that it is giving you. And scripture serves that same purpose. It, it warns us uh, what will happen to those who disregard it and disregard God and do not love him. Thirdly, he says that we should love uh, the consolatory parts, and that is the, the parts that offer us consolation. And here he points specifically at the promises of God in the Word. And he says they function as conduits of the water of life, that the promises of God uh, bring the water of life to us in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our suffering. They console us. They give us comfort and hope uh, in this life and for the life to come. So how are we to love the Word of God? Watson goes on to say there are three primary ways that we love it. First, we love it by reading it privately. Uh, God wrote the Scripture for us. Right? He didn't write it for himself. He wrote the Bible for us. Uh, and so how can we say that we love God if we refuse or neglect to read what he wrote for us? How can we claim that we love him if we don't love what he has written? Uh, you know, he, God didn't give us big down comforters and DVDs, right? It's not what he left for us. If you love me, wrap yourself in this comforter and watch this DVD. No, he gave us a book. That means he expects us to read it. Uh, he's given us these things for our good. Psalm chapter 1 verse 2 says that the godly man uh, delights in the law of God. It says that he meditates on it day and night. Well, what does it mean to meditate on the scriptures day and night? Well, first of all, if you're meditating day and night, uh, then you are meditating probably in private, right? Uh, you're not often with other people around the clock, especially in the middle of the night, uh, so you are meditating on it. Interestingly, that word uh, meditate there actually um, means uh, to make some sort of vocal utterance. Uh, it could be groanings in the night. It could be singing uh, the scripture, particularly the Psalms might be in view there, but it is, it, it, it's meditating, regurgitating the Word of God, dwelling on it uh, both day and night. Uh, 
Psalm 113, verse 6 says, uh, oh, I've got the wrong passage written down here. Maybe I'm at Psalm 119, verse 6. Nope. Oh. Psalm 63. Sorry, can't read my own handwriting. I got mixed up. Psalm 63, verse 6 says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So there's another instance of the psalmist alone at night, meditating on God and on his word. And then in Psalm 119, verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way." And the word uh, the meditation that's used here as he's meditating on the testimonies of God uh, means to silently pray as you're thinking through Scripture, to pray through Scripture. Uh, and that's what Psalm 119 is, is David's meditation on the Word of God. So we are to read it, uh, to think about it, to dwell on it, to pray over it uh, individually in our own lives. We're also to do so in our families. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses instructs the Israelites, he says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That, that's all of life, that the, the parents are to teach their children the word of God. It's a regular part of their family life as they, as they do life together as a family. They're teaching their children the word. And, and think about what that says to do, and then think about this young man, Timothy, in the New Testament, who Paul, uh, writing his second letter to Timothy, says that Timothy experienced what Deuteronomy 6 tells families to do. Because in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 14, Paul says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And we know from earlier in the letters, Timothy's mother and his grandmother, who faithfully uh, taught him diligently the word of God, as they talked with him, as they sat in their house, as they walked by the way, as they went to bed at night, and when they rose up in the morning, they diligently taught Timothy the scriptures. And, if, and so we are called upon to teach the scriptures to our children and to our grandchildren. Daniel Hyde, in an article at Ligonier.com, says that ignorance of scripture leads to ignorance of Christ. And so if we would have our children and following generations uh, to know Christ and to come to him in faith, we must teach them the scriptures. Thirdly, uh, we are to attend to scripture publicly, uh, that is, in uh, the life of the church. And we see examples of this in the New Testament. Uh, predominantly, we can think about Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Uh, as Jesus is visiting the synagogue, uh, they 
apparently are working their way through the scripture. Uh, and so Jesus takes part in this. It says so in chapter 4, verse 16 of the Gospel of Luke, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened one, the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So Jesus went to the synagogue regularly, it says, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah because that's what they were reading, and he read this passage. Uh, we see in Second Timothy or in First Timothy chapter four that uh, Paul instructs Timothy uh, how the church is to engage with the Word of God. He says in chapter four, verse thirteen, that till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So Timothy is to read the scriptures publicly in the church, to exhort the congregation from the scriptures, and to teach them the apostles' doctrine. And we notice that in many of Paul's letters, including uh, his letter to Colossae, that he instructs them that they are to read the letters publicly and to read the letters that were written to the other churches as well. And so uh, we are to give attention to uh, the scriptures in our life together as a church. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, again, I quoted him Sunday in my sermon, but in, in that uh, first apology that he wrote explaining the Christian faith to the Roman emperor, he said this, he said, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the members, and, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. By the memoirs of the apostles, I take it he means the gospels and the letters uh, and by the writings of the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Imagine this, they were read as long as time permits. I don't know what that means, but it seems like they probably read more than a verse or two. But they were gathering themselves together, continuing steadfastly in the scriptures. And so as we think about someone who is new to the faith, we want to ask, how, how, what is their attitude towards the word of God? Uh, and we should ask this even of ourselves as seasoned Christians. What is our attitude? Do we love the word of God? Uh, do we turn to the word of God to teach us how to live? Do we turn to it to correct us in our sin? And do we love it for its correction? Do we love it because it gives us hope uh, for the life to come? Do we love uh, the apostles' doctrine? Do we long to know God more by studying his scripture and studying the doctrines that are taught in it? Do we long to understand God with our minds? Like I said, we, we, we have to teach our children to know the scripture so that they can know Christ. Do we long to uh, keep God's commandments? Do we long for the greater to, to greater love God by attending to his word that he has given us? Do we long to hear his word taught and preached? Uh, do we cherish scripture when it reproves us for our sin? Do we desire to be made holy by its instruction? Do we desire to put sin to death in our lives by means of the scripture? 
These are questions we should ask of ourselves and questions that we could look at someone new to the faith, whether that's a child of ours or a friend of ours, and say, do they have a love for the Scripture? Are they hunger for it? Jesus told his followers, he said in John um, chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, how are we to know what his commandments are to keep them uh, apart from learning them in the Scriptures? Uh, A lot of people want to talk about loving God, loving Jesus, but the heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. If we don't know Christ from the Scripture, we cannot properly love Him. Those who would say that they love God, that they love Jesus, but they don't attend to the Scripture, I would say that they're something akin to you know, a young person who has a crush on someone that they've actually never met. And they think they love this person, but they don't know them. They don't know anything about them other than what they look like, perhaps. So they don't know the person. They don't know what kind of person it is. They think they're in love, but they're in love with something they've created in their own imaginations, not with who the person really is. If we love Jesus, we have to get to know him from the scriptures. In John chapter 1, a passage that we're very familiar with, but John says an astonishing thing about Christ He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's talking about Jesus being the Word made flesh. Jesus is the fullness of deity in human flesh. He is the Word of God embodied. If we love Jesus, the embodied Word, we should also love the inspired Word, the Scriptures, which teach us of Him. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus speaking and reproving uh, the religious leaders of His day says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. There is eternal life in the scriptures, but only when we find it in Christ. Uh, The scriptures teach us about Christ. And so if we would love Jesus, the embodied word of God, we must love the scriptures, the inspired word of God, which instruct us about salvation in Christ alone, instruct us in the Christian life, how we are to live. Uh, And so we should delight in the scripture, to learn more of God and to learn how to live and to put sin to death and to place our hope in the promises of God for the world to come. And so a sure sign of salvation is someone continues steadfastly in their love for the scriptures. Let's close in a word of prayer.